welcome to episode 13. Can't believe yeah. it. Yeah, I know. It's gone quite quickly, hasn't it, really? I know. It well, just that's... shows how long we've been in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, we're kind of getting slowly released out, you know, to be mingle a lot more. It's a strange transitional mm. phase. It feels like you're starting to get back to normal, but you're not. You're not allowing you to do these things, but at the same time, you don't want to do these things because you know there's still a risk. And even though the cinemas are open, mm. currently they're just showing classic films. But some of those classic films, a few of them are tempting. For example, at the local cinema, they're showing The Shining. Now, I was thinking, how often do you get a chance to see something like The Shining at the cinema? But it's another, it's weird. That's why I mean, it's normal, but it's not normal. Yeah. I still don't know if I want to go to the cinema to watch something which isn't a new release. Mm. What would you watch in the big screen that you would want them to, you know, rerun? Blade Runner, Blade Runner and Blade Runner. Mm. Okay. Big bad Blade Runner fan then. Yes, I absolutely love it. Space films will be quite good. Gravity. Well, gravity would gravity be, yeah. be good to watch again. Gravity would be amazing. I mean, Space so Odyssey. Be, yes. I mean, often actually, I'm, you know, sometimes when we're reviewing some of the films we're watching for either for the first time or watching again, you know, like this week, I was thinking, yeah, watching Silence of the Lambs on the big screen, <laughs> quite a hoot. Or yeah, even... I don't think I watched it on the big screen, actually. It was too young when it came out. You reckon? Mm. came out in 91. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I may have seen that at the cinema. So I think no, I may have young. done. I can't remember where. You're obviously a... older than me. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. I, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't sure whether to bring any specific dates into that. I can't even remember whether it was a 15 or an 18 now. It's probably an 18. I remember certainly being excited that it was coming out because I knew the stars were were good i had empire magazine and i, I loved reading that and seeing all the uh, the hype around science and lambs coming out and you know the oscars as well wrapped around that how many they won should we start with science and the lambs seeing as we're on the subject we can do yeah why not why not and then molly molly's game can be our second, second. view yeah right so how did you how did you watch this this film firstly rob because i watched it eating my dinner with liver fava beans and a nice chianti <laughs> <laughs> totally edging in conversation to get to get that in. Mine was chicken Kiev and chips. <laughs> with a beer on the side. Exactly. With a beer. Not, not like quite. a little mouse. <laughs> I know, I can't do that. Or a little rabbit sort of <laughs> that sounds strange. Is that it? Uh I don't know why my hands automatically go into like this kind of squirrel pose. You I mean, turn a Wallace and Gromit. This, this is all totally lost. This is all totally lost on anyone listening. We should probably, we should probably just move on. Ah, crikey. So right. yeah, this was, this was out in 1991, directed by Jonathan Demi. And it's based on a novel of the same name and adapted by a chap called Ted Talley. It is a bit of trivia. I'm getting some trivia in right from the start. One of only three films to win what's called the Big Five at the Oscars. So Ooh. it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor and Best Actress. Only ever happened twice before, which was with 
the film It Happened One Night in 1934 and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, one of my favourite films ever. So that's quite cool. I didn't realise that. Jonathan Demme, he went on to do Philadelphia a couple of years later, which won Tom Hanks the first of his two Oscars. So we have FBI trainee Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, who aspires to work in the agency's behavioural science unit. So this was the unit that was established in the early 70s when they began to interview, or in some cases collaborate with convicted serial killers to better understand the psychology behind their motives and to basically try and prevent future killings. So sidetracking here for a bit, if anyone's interested in learning more about the origins of this particular unit and their methods, I would really recommend David Fincher's Netflix series Mindhunter. I think I mentioned it before. Mm. And that features characters that overlap with those in The Silence of the Lambs. So Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, he runs the unit and is someone that Clarice is desperate to work for. So Crawford spots her talent and asks her to question Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins or Sir Anthony Hopkins, who is a psychiatrist who's been in prison for eight years in maximum security isolation for being a serial killer who cannibalized his victims. So whilst initially she's led to believe this interview is purely routine as part of just their ongoing work, she figures out that the assignment is to pick Lecter's brains to help them solve another serial murder case, which is this murderer called Buffalo Bill, coined Buffalo Bill by the media, played by Ted Levine. Now, he's known for killing five young women, all found drowned with portions of their bodies skinned. When meeting Lecter, he's less interested in her mundane line of questioning and immediately knows why she's been sent and decides to turn the interview on her by insisting on this kind of quid pro quo arrangement where he agrees to give some information to Clarice if uh, she will allow him to ask her questions about her past. So like throwing a dog a bit of fresh meat, he just completely comes to life and revels in this prospect of getting into the mind of this vulnerable young trainee. But Clarice is so determined to impress Crawford and help track down Buffalo Bill, she agrees. And even if it means giving away her personal thoughts and having to delve into her family history, she's willing to go ahead and do that. It's almost like a sacrifice she's willing to make. And so with the tension slowly ratcheting up, we've got these two parallel stories running. One which follows Buffalo Bill whose latest victim, Catherine Martin, played by Brooke Smith, um, is imprisoned in this unknown basement lair. And she happens to be the daughter of this high-profile senator. And the other is this dangerous teacher-pupil-like relationship between Lecter and Clarice as she tries to solve the case. And whilst this plays out, the nation's media get onto the whole story And it becomes a race against time to get the intel needed from Lecter to find Buffalo Bill and save the senator's daughter's life without compromising anybody's safety. So what to say on this one for me? I mean, obviously, I'll come back to it. But I found it just super enjoyable. I mean, the film is so well known for Hopkins' portrayal of Lecter. I had only seen this film once before, and I suppose... I couldn't wait to see that first encounter between Clarice and Lecter because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really remember it all. You just can't take your eyes off him. And those interactions, those moments where Clarice, obviously behind a screen because he's in 
totally imprisoned. Those interactions between those two, of which there are only like three or four in the entire movie, this is fantastic. Absolutely mesmerising to watch. And I suppose the other, the only other note is just I actually forgot how gruesome the, the film is in parts. Um, and it really is quite dark and twisted and quite graphic, which I had forgotten. So, yeah, I'll hand over to you, Sarah. What did you think? I wouldn't say I entirely enjoyed it because it was a real psychological chiller. Um, I wouldn't say it was jumpy like a, you know, like a, a scary movie, but it did certainly make me feel uncomfortable to watch at times because we had the vulgar Buffalo Bill and the smart, calculated Hannibal Lecter. And Starling was, you know, was able to take on whatever uh, Hannibal sort of threw at her, really. But Anthony Hopkins, as I agree, he's fantastic in this film. Uh, I couldn't think of anyone else to play the part, really. He's played a lot of villains over the years, but in a more psychological way, again, I think. And I remember seeing him first time in The Bridge Too Far, so a completely different style of film. But I, I, but I thought, yeah, he was a good actor in that. But I think the 90s and noughties was real Anthony Hopkins' purple patch for acting. And for 30 years, he would, he'd been playing other parts before that. And I thought this role, was he just played it so well. I mean, Hopkins was given the part based on his performance in The Elephant Man, apparently, uh, where he played a doctor. Um, but that doctor was good, however. And Jonathan Demme sold this role to Hopkins by saying Hannibal Lecter is good but trapped in an insane mind which uh, I guess Hopkins bought it basically uh, the film was you know he was mesmerizing um, he was cold very straight-backed confident and liked to play games with Clara Starling played by Jodie Foster as you've already mentioned and he apparently in preparation for this film he studied files of serial killers visited prisons studied convicted murderers and even was present in some court hearings of some gruesome murders I mean I don't know about you but how does somebody go through that and not need some sort of therapy afterwards I totally agree yeah well don't watch Mindhunter then because the entire tv series (laughs) is basically about people interviewing serial killers it's pretty full-on but um apparently Scott Glenn was offered the chance to listen to a proper FBI recording, and let's just say the recording was pretty graphic. It was supposed to actually yeah. be recorded during pretty violent murder, I think, or rape. You know, again, by doing his research with the FBI, he listened to this tape recording, and mm-hmm. he could only listen to like 10 seconds of it. And he said even now, he will never forget it. And it's kind of mm-hmm. almost lived in his head. So you're absolutely right. I, I don't know how. Absolutely, yeah. don't know how you. Can I mean, we've had some actors that have got really into their role as well, uh, like Heath Ledger, for example, and then you know he couldn't cope with with being the Joker after a while, and I think he was doing something in his his next role that's triggered off some psychological um, problems in that. But Starling was um, wasn't really. I didn't think she was that intimidated by him. She knew, she'd done some research, knew what he was like, knew what uh, she was looking for. She was very, you know, determined um, to solve um, any, you know, any puzzles that um, Hopkins' character, Hannibal Lecter, would give her. And, you know, this was her first assignment. She was keen as mustard and, and, and she wanted to impress Crawford. But she was very brave. I wouldn't go into at a, on a dark night into a garage, an empty garage on my own, and have some complete random stranger 
you know, try and help me get in and he didn't quite let you get in. You know, she did a lot of dark scenes, but that's to kind of set the scene that it was a thriller, really, I think, uh, added, added to the ambiance, let's call it. But what I found was a bit weird is in the film, I didn't like the way the male FBI trainees looked at her. And when they were in training, were they ogling at her because they, they thought she was attractive or were they ogling at her because they thought, wow, she's really good at what she does? Or is it because she picked up the case? But I noticed at the start when she's running and doing some training, they're kind of laughing at her or staring at her before she's even got the case. So what's that all about? Well, I, I, th- I think that was all part of, well, the way I read it anyway, was first of all, it was still an environment you felt where it was a man's world. Even even yeah. as a trainee FBI agent, it was quite clear they made that point. She had like one friend, if you like, she was training with. Mm-hmm. All the rest were were men. So I think it was almost hammering home that point. Perhaps mm-hmm. she perhaps she was she was so determined. Maybe she came across as a bit of a goody two shoes because she was so desperate. Maybe that's why she got the looks. Uh, and also. And actually Hannibal Lecter plays upon this. She comes from a very backward part of the States in West Virginia, mm. or it's certainly seen, you know, seen as that. And Hannibal Lecter takes the mick out of her accent. Yeah. And I think it's just to build this whole idea of her always feeling like she's got to prove herself whilst others are looking at her and perhaps feel that she can't do it. So I would, I would just put it down as pure misogynistic you know, a woman, a young woman trying to make her way in a man's world. Yeah, and actually I read that Hopkins chose to take the mickey out of her accent, which took Jodie Foster aback a bit. She didn't expect, well, the first scene that they did together, I don't think she expected him to, to take the mick out of her accent. It wasn't part of the script. And I think he did that on a few occasions. I think mm. he threw a few things at her. Well, no, she thanked him afterwards. Because I, yeah. guess she, I guess she understood afterwards. What that, he was doing, yeah. yeah. what he was doing, and that obviously got the best, the best out of her in creating this mm. weird tension. Yeah. It is, it is a bit, I mean, I've experienced that myself. I've been to the US before on a business trip and I've had Americans taking the mick out of my English accent. And you're just like, it's unnecessary. <laughs> it's just, it, they try, I don't know whether they're trying to intimidate you or make a joke out of it or, or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's a bit a bit odd anyway. So Buffalo Bill, I found pretty vulgar and it was quite an interesting choice of, of casting for that as well because I also think maybe some other people were offered the role and they didn't take it or but there were some really vulgar scenes you know the likes of maybe if John Malkovich was was offered the role whether he would have taken it or not I don't know because um, he was fairly, fairly well established then I wouldn't say that the, the actor that was chosen had done that many roles previously would you know I've got to be honest I hadn't heard of Ted Levine mm. at all but he may well have been quite a respected actor around that time but mm. of course you know we were quite young when this happened so yeah. but a lot of factors turned down roles that were offered to them for this film because of exactly that the subject matter mm. they just thought you know they thought it was just a bit too dark and of course actors are so concerned about tarnishing the way they're portrayed in films and not want to be suddenly go into a very very dark space with a character Character, where others seem to be more open to it. I mean, he played it brilliantly, though, however. It did strike me that he he flitted from being evil to sympathising with the, the person that he captured because there's one scene where he actually was actually crying when she was calling out for mo- her mother. And I don't know whether it's a reflection of him missing his mother or he was ashamed of what he had done to this girl. I don't know. But it was it was really interesting to see his his character changes throughout and he could just switch on and off his, his kind of nice 
nicety when he, you know, Jodie Foster turned up at his door, front door, to, you know, this being this, this evil character. I don't understand how Hannibal Lecter managed to pick up the pen that Dr. Chilton left behind in this prison cell. He was had a, a muzzle almost around his face and he had his arms all taped up. How on earth did he do that? <laughs> I kind of, I know what you mean. It was so obvious the way the camera kept was, showing yeah. the pen. Like, yeah, okay, he knew he was going to do it, but how did do he do it? it? I don't know. It was one of those parts of the films where you did have to almost suspend your disbelief and almost forgive some things that you just think how and even then having got the pen the next time you see the pen he it's only a small part of it that he's managed to break off to use but i think because when he was in memphis in the cell he probably got the the bit out of the pen out so his arms hands were free then weren't that's true because then true. he had to get, then he had to get um, chained up in the with you know handcuffed to the cell bars. Uh, yeah, and he yeah he basically unpicked his handcuffs with with that nib of the pen basically. Yeah, and it, but even then to unpick the I mean I guess you see this in loads of films. I, I imagine the process of behind your back with whatever mm. you have yeah. in between your fingers is still not a straightforward thing to do. And mm. yet in this he does it almost immediately. Yeah, but, but maybe he's done it before. We don't know, do we? Maybe. And obviously he's you know he he's portrayed as this total mastermind. So you you kind of forgive it. We don't want to give too much away in case you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs. But as soon as you meet Hannibal Lecter, you are just inevitably thinking, <laughs> is this guy going to get out? You know what I mean? You can't help it because he's built up to be this terrifying character. It's just in your mind all the time. So when you start to see those yeah. signposts of the dinner being brought in and the, and the first of all, you're seeing the knife and fork and you're thinking, is it something to do? And what did he ask for for dinner? It was lamb. <laughs> Wasn't it after she told him the story about yeah. these lambs being yeah. silenced? Um, I mean, Foster and Hopkins both picked up an Oscar for their roles in this. But what was interesting is that Hopkins was only in the film for 24 minutes. Yeah. So should he have actually been a best supporting actor? At the time, you're absolutely right. At the time, it was a, it was the thing that people were talking about is whether he should have been in that supporting actor category. Mm. And I must admit, I don't know the ins and outs of how you determine what category you are allowed to put no. forward for. I really don't. I really don't know. But it's one of those strange things. I think the reason it's it's quite surprising to hear how long or how sorry how little he's in the film is that he is so integral to it. And when you think about the film, he's he's the number one character you think about. So he, you know his relationship with Clarice far more so than Buffalo Bill or any of the other characters. So I mean, you think of best actor performances that we see year on year. I was watching thinking, you've got to give the guy an Oscar for that because it's mm. just, you know, the way he makes the most of that 20, 21 minutes he has is oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it was, it, as soon as he was on screen, he just caught my, you know, completely caught my attention. And I was like, it's just the eyes and the, the way eyes. he stands so upright, yeah, really, really odd. And he but... doesn't uh, he doesn't blink. Apparently, he picked this up from someone he knew in his theatre days mm-hmm. who he found quite strange because he never blinked. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a really simple thing that he put into the character. If he was blinking, his decision to wear all white when we originally meet him, that was his decision. Originally, in the novel, he was behind bars, 
apparently Demi just didn't like this idea of having to work with bars in between when he was trying to create these close encounters with Clarice. So that's why they introduced the glass screen instead in the in the film. Mm. But, but because of that, I think because he had the glass screen, it made him look like really extra. He's the extra scary one because he had a different setup to the other prisoners in the along that corridor when when they first met in Baltimore. I know that I know there's Hannibal, there's Red Dragon, and they've got a prequel also uh, to Silence of the Lamb, which is Hannibal Rising. Now Hopkins plays in Hannibal and Red Dragon as well. I haven't watched them. I'm debating whether to watch them because it's it did disturb me this film. But I, as you know, I'm not great with thrillers or or scary movies. But I don't know. Have you watched any of these at all? I watched Hannibal at the cinema because this film was so impactful. I think it drew so many people back to watch to watch that character, especially the way this film ends, <laughs> which is yeah. another talking point. It's like, crikey, what does he go off and do? Yeah, no, um, it's almost a bit of a jokey thing at the end. It though, is, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. Adds a bit of humour. Yeah. yeah, the Hannibal film was nowhere near as gripping because he was out in the open and he was kind of almost free to do what he wanted. Mm. You know, whilst you almost saw how gruesome and terrifying that all was, it doesn't have the same impact as watching a dangerous character from who's effectively imprisoned and kind of living with this narrative of like the prospect of this guy getting out and therefore what would he do? It just, it wasn't the same. And in some ways it was almost, it did feel a bit hammy, the second film. It was a lot more, I remember watching it thinking this is just all getting a bit silly now, but I only watched it once and it wasn't enough for me to then watch Red Dragon. I think this very much, even though this was part of three films based on the books, I've always got the impression this one really stands head and shoulders above the rest. Mm -hmm. Because the first one was done in 91, you said. Hannibal was done in 2001 and then 2002 was Red Dragon. So they must have shot them back to back pretty much those two films that's right yeah yeah but i i I mean i found it very clever i sometimes struggled to follow hannibal um when he spoke really fast when starling had to to leave uh, because she kept on getting in situations where she shouldn't be really visiting hannibal and he would say something give her a clue just as she was leaving and i didn't quite catch some of it sometimes but I knew that he was playing with her all along, you know, anagrams, etc. And but she got it, she got it. But I have to say, it's probably one of the best psychological thrillers I've seen. Well, you mentioned it there, like one of the best psychological thrillers you've seen. It is also mm. in the horror category, probably slightly more thriller. But there were mm. elements to it which were pretty gruesome. I thought there was one particular part of this which started to veer into that jumpy horror territory. Was mm the scene where Clarice tracks down oh yes yeah. tracks down the the location where buffalo, oh, bill, buffalo bill yeah she she basically finds herself in complete darkness in this maze of rooms in this basement the lights get turned off on her and suddenly we are seeing things from the point of view of buffalo bill through these um, infrared goggles and so mm-hmm. we're seeing Clarice literally flailing around not knowing where the hell she is because it's pitch black yeah and we're seeing this figure almost reach out his hand and almost mm-hmm. like he was caressing her but not touching it was horrible her. that bit was horrible that yeah, what was horrible. Horrible. and i remember watching that bit and thinking okay this this is proper 
pretty yeah. scary horror type stuff. And I found that mm. really, really well done. Uh, and the way Jodie Foster plays that particular part, I thought it was very, very convincing. And that proper weird world of Buffalo Bill, the whole cross-dressing theme, the way in which he did that strange dance, reminded me a bit of uh, Wacken Phoenix's uh, dance he does in The Joker very kind of twisted and dark and strange it's one of those films which it is quite hard to fault yeah um i've been umming and ahhing what to give it to be honest it's between an eight and a half and and nine for me but because there was i just didn't understand the pen piece and also i struggled to to follow an occasion i'm going to give it eight and a half which people will probably like what but yeah there was little faults other than that i think it was I mean, and it's also probably not something I'd pick up and 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 necessarily get re- go out and, and and watch if we hadn't done this podcast. So yeah, eight and a half for me. I'm the same. I would have given it nine, but there were a few bits of it which were just either enough to make you go what, or there yeah. was either a few scenes with cops running around and standing in um, Charlie's Angels type poses that just took the shine off it slightly. So yes, it could have been a nine, but I'm going. Well, I thought you'd give it more, actually. And yeah, I'm going to yeah. give it eight point. I'm not as uh, I'm not going to be quite oh. as generous generous today. So it's an eight point <laughs> five for me as well. I would say though, before we move on. Mm. it's one of the best performances that you're going to see from any actor on screen. Um, One of the most memorable as well. So if anybody hasn't seen Silence of the Lambs, you must watch it purely for Anthony Hopkins and also Jodie Foster, but specifically Anthony Hopkins. It is, you will never forget it. And it's unlike anything you've ever seen before. So I would definitely watch it just for that. So on to Molly's game. So it was released in 2017, directed and screenplay by Aaron Sorkin. And actually, it was his first directorial debut. And he also worked very closely with Molly Bloom, which this film is about. Now, Molly, played by Jessica Chastain, was an Olympic-class skier in her younger days and had quite a pushy dad to get her to where she was and unfortunately got injured badly in Olympic trials. Later in life, she runs the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker games and then gets arrested by about 17 FBI agents with automatic weapons because her games included not only Hollywood stars, sports stars, business tycoons, but what was of interest in particular to the FBI was these Russian was the Russian mafia. She seeks out a defence lawyer to support her called Charlie Jeffrey, played by Idris Elba, and he learns there's much more to Molly in this case, so he takes it on. I chose this film because of the competitive nature of Molly, uh, the strive for success, and we've spoken about this before, actually, with competitiveness uh, from when we reviewed Whiplash, actually. Um, she's, she's gutsy, smart, but on some occasions not so smart, and doesn't realise what she's doing, and she won't let people walk over here either. But it's amazing that this is also a true story and well told by the writer Dawkin. There are other actors that play famous people in the film. They include Michael Cera, Chris O'Dowd, and Stranger Things' Joe Keery. Film and Graham Green pops up because Kevin Costner is also in the film, and it's nice to see Graham Green back with Kevin Costner, who they did Dance the Walls together. I think it was a great film. I'd love to get your thoughts, Rob. Yeah, I really was intrigued to watch this because it was one of those films that came and went and I heard really good things about it, specifically Jessica Chastain's performance. 
And because Aaron Sorkin has such a reputation for this fast, razor-sharp-like dialogue, I mean, I think the best example would be Social Network that maybe people will will remember. Mm. Um, didn't realise Kevin Costner was in it. I love the Kev, can't beat the Kev. <laughs> so I was intrigued to see what, you know, what role he played in it. I didn't realise Idris Elba was in it. The yeah. only thing I really knew was, was Jessica Chastain. I mean, when I read the blurb on this last week of this gear that basically has this injury and, and ends up organising these ridiculous high stake private poker games I thought wow that's a, that's super intriguing and it absolutely was I thought the story was incredible it was funny actually when I was watching this Sarah I was thinking wow she's super competitive this is definitely a film with a really strong female character talk about we mentioned it before talking about Clarice Starling this mm. woman in a man's world I mean this this was like that was steroids. I thought it was interesting that you get somebody who had that one pursuit in life that her entire upbringing was based on, um, which was making it onto the Olympic skiing team. And we learn in the film that all of her siblings have been incredibly successful in their various fields. I think her, I think her brother was a world champion skier himself. I thought it was interesting that when she has to make that decision to look at what she was going to do with her life and she chose that she would pursue law, which I think was always just like a given with the family, this chance encounter she has when she decides to take a year out and, and move to LA, I think it is, and she gets a job waiting in this nightclub and then she meets one of the uh, clientele and then one thing leads to another he ends up being this person this guy's personal assistant and that's when she finds herself organizing his poker games and gets drawn into this world that she knows nothing about but she is so intelligent and she it's almost like she's a sponge she can just mm-hmm. suck mm-hmm. up information and become like become an expert at anything she puts her mind to so she just learns everything there is to learn about poker and how these high stakes poker games are run and yeah it's just really fascinating to see how she goes from one for one for a better word profession in terms of sport to this other world I think it's once she once she realizes that she can be successful in doing this, and I think it's more than that. I think it is being successful like in a man's world. That seems to be, if you like, the firecracker that really makes her want to go it alone and set up her own poker games. And she wants to be known for having the best guests, the highest buy-ins, the best locations she gets sucked into that world because she just wants to be as successful as she possibly can. Mm-hmm. And it's a real shame in some ways that her downfall really comes from a pretty peripheral character in the film who suggests that in these poker games that she's running, that she basically takes a rake. And for those who know poker, they may know that the rake is when the house takes a, a fixed fee off, uh, out of the pot to cover expenses and I think the critical thing in this film is while she's hosting these games it's perfectly legal one because of the state in which she's doing it and two any money she makes are gifts they're tips given by the players which again is perfectly legal but as soon as you 
start to take a rake or you start to take money from the pot, if you like, cover expenses, that's when it becomes an illegal activity. Mm. And it's at that point that things totally change. She starts to have so much money being betted in these games by very high profile characters that should someone lose, sometimes getting the money back from them is a problem. And suddenly, so if you like her exposure in the real world with debts becomes higher and higher. And so she's advised you should really take a rake to cover yourself for any potential losses. That's when it all changes. I thought that was a real shame in some ways, because although you could argue her downfall was also the fact that she was just ramping everything up. And she may have ended up always, you know, taking drugs because she was so stressed. That could have always happened anyway. I thought that was a real shame. And for me, the whole film strangely came to life for me. And this is not just because I like Kevin Costner, but she effectively alienates her father. Uh, She has this relationship with him that is established very early on in the film as her coach, if you like, a mentor, always pushing her to try and do better and better and better as he does with every uh, son or daughter he has. But there clearly is a, a clash always with those two. And so it's established very early on. So when she makes that decision to completely veer off and start taking doing all these uh, poker games, he only comes back into her life at the time of, you know, when it's starting to unravel for her in the middle of uh, this case with the lawyer. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think I've ever seen Kevin Costner in... I don't know, he wasn't really a good guy in this film, was he? He he wasn't a great dad. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen him in a film where he's not really a good guy. Very rarely. I would recommend you watch a film called Perfect World, in which he, just, I think, oh. is the first time I ever saw him play against type. But yeah. you're, you're right. And, I, and there's this portion of the film where he, you know, because his profession, he's a psychologist, and he prides himself on his career. And he... You know, as he coins it, I'll give you three years of therapy in three minutes. This, <laughs> when he sat down yeah. on the bench with his daughter and basically tells her to her face that the reason she's taken this path in life, the reason she's done everything she's done, the reason there's always been this barrier between her and her father is because she witnessed something when she was younger which was her finding out that her dad was having an affair, but because she was so young, she didn't realize she didn't realize it at the time, but her father did. And so ever since that point, her father acted very differently around her. Mm. And so that's why she grew up with this father who she couldn't just couldn't understand, acted in a certain way. And so she wasn't even aware of it. So he kind of tells her this, you know, her whole life is about trying to beat the men, trying to be better than than every man in her life. And when you hear that, you think, well, that's I mean, that is so true. It plays out in the entire film. There are very few female characters around her apart mm-hmm. from those that she's employs to host the poker games. And I just thought it was really sad in some ways that this entire film, this entire story, which is a real fall from grace of someone you just feel is trying to do the right thing and is doing it in a, in a yeah, although it's poker games, she's, she's not doing anything illegal until that one moment, that it could all come down to something her dad did <laughs> that well, she wasn't even aware yeah. of. And and I think, you know, we don't need to give away the ending in terms of, you know, her sentencing or what, what verdict the court gave in the particular case, because this is all based on real life events. But for me, the ending was, was quite satisfying. I, I just felt sorry for her in the end. Um, but until that point where she has the conversation with her father, I found it difficult to completely invest in her. 
Yeah, what she wore as well was quite provocative in, on occasion. She always had cleavage. Was every whatever she wore of meeting a gentleman, and she almost used you know was using her sexuality to to pull these men in. And she had so many men saying, "Oh, I love you," and she goes, "No, you don't. You've got a wife and your children." She was a good person because she would set them straight and say, "No, you don't." And she would also, when it came to the poker games. She would say to them, this is not your game, is it? She gave them a get-out-of-jail kind of card, really, on, on, on some of the games. But these guys were greedy, so greedy. And, and I've seen the list of some of the, the, the Hollywood stars and famous people that she set these games up for. And uh, really interesting. And certainly when it came to Mr. X who that was as well. I don't know whether we want to share that or, or not. I think you can. It's on IMDb. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a list of names that apparently have played at her games. I think the two biggest that I remember reading from the list was DiCaprio and Matt Damon, but there were others. Yep. Yeah, so, so Toby I mean, Maguire. Yeah. Toby Maguire, so to- that's right. Yeah, was Mr. X. And gosh, I like Toby Maguire. And now I'm looking at him in a different light. And he would go quiet for quite a few years. So maybe it probably defected his his career, I think, as well. Uh, but Leo DiCaprio, Alec Gores, who's a millionaire business owner, Macaulay Culkin, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Alex Rodriguez, who's a baseball player. There was Nelly, the Olsen sisters, and there's some, a lot of professional poker players as well. And on that, what was interesting is that I read the poker players, there was a lot of professional poker players that were extras in the film. And between the takes, they would play for real and they earned usually about $90 for 12-hour working day. But by adding their winnings on top, they were actually the highest paid people on set. <laughs> so it was unbelievable, really. Um, but yeah. But the thing is, you, you, you hear about this all the time. It's no surprise to hear of, you know, the likes of Matt Damon, I mean, no. Crikey, George yeah. Clooney, all these actors, you know that they, you know, they, they play poker games. I would love to watch a mm. documentary that delves more into this world. When I read the connection between, you know, household names, you know, that effectively are characterized potentially in this film, it takes on a whole new level of interest for me. So I was fascinated because I imagine this is still going, you know, it's going on now. Um, there'll be someone yeah. out there who's who's organizing these games in the same way that, that Molly Bloom did, I imagine. Mm, mm, but you don't want to mess with the, the, the Russian mafia. <laughs> no, no, you've got to be careful who you invite, let's just say. Yeah. Anyway, what are you going to give it? So Aaron Sorkin definitely delivered on the dialogue. It was exactly as you'd expect. And there were some really nice, good, sharp scenes, specifically when Jessica Chastain was acting opposite Idris Elba, I I felt worked particularly well. It was a really interesting real-life story. As I say, for me, I found her a fascinating character to follow, but I couldn't wholly invest in her until that part of the film where, for me, it all clicked as to why she was like she was. So I'm going to give it seven and a half out of ten. It certainly raised my interest in this whole subject area. Jessica Chastain is amazing, definitely her best performance, and I can't wait to see her in other stuff. But I was so surprised that she didn't get nominated for an Oscar for this. I really am. But I know that she was up against Emma Stone for La La Land 
Pitt and Natalie Portman that for Jackie that year, I think. I believe it was that year. But she's a brilliant actress. I'd like to see more of her. I think she got nominated for The Help, which was a brilliant film as well, which I added to my list. Uh, and she's, you know, she starred in Stella, Martian Lawless, which is a brilliant film. Uh, but she also got nominated for Zero Dark Thirty as well, which is a re- really good film. Zero so, Dark Thirty, sorry, Zero Dark Thirty, you just reminded me of that now, is a fantastic film. Yeah. That, that yeah. she's in as well. Yeah. But um, she, yeah, she, she is, she's a total star. Of all she the leading is. ladies out there at the moment, she's right up there at the top, isn't she? Mm, yeah. And you got, you got the Kev. The Kevin Costner the in Kev. there, Idris the Elba. It's oozing with yes, celebrities in this film. It's good. Um, it's intelligent. It's a little bit long. It's two two hours twenty minutes. I'm going to give it eight out of ten. Actually, good stuff. Good stuff. Moving on, we go on to our selections for this week. Now, there's only one genre left in the hat. The last one left is romance, and so I think we need to pick a romance film for somebody else. Yeah. So romance, I have. Uh, 19 romance today is the 6th of july so i'm going to go for number six number six very good choice very romantic it's the notebook i mean yeah. well, i was thinking of romantic films it's not on my list the notebook but i thought oh the notebook's one of my top ones i know i i thought this is going to be probably on sarah's list because i i thought if you like romance this always seems to be right up there yeah, and it's got Rachel McAdams, Ryan Gosling, Gina Richards and James Gardner in it as well. And it was filmed in 2004. can't believe it was so long ago. I'll give you the blurb. A poor yet passionate young man falls in love with a rich young woman, giving her a sense of freedom. But they are soon separated because of their social differences. I'm going to be in tears. I know that. <laughs> it's on Netflix. So streaming Yay. on Netflix. Yay. And you can rent or buy from Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Microsoft, Google Play, Sky Store, etc. etc. So most online channels, which is great. Looking forward to that. So now all genres go back in the hat. So it is time for you, Sarah, to pick the first genre of this new round. The drama. Right. Drama llama. Mm-hmm. There is no longer list. Than the drama, <laughs> than the drama genre. How many have you got now? I've got seventy. <gasps> Whoa! Wow. So many fall across different categories, don't they? So I'm going to go for number ten, please. Oh, number ten is Casablanca. Oh, I have not seen it. Believe it or not. So this is Humphrey Bogart in his most famous it's like film. A double whammy of romance, isn't it? Yeah, given that we've got The Notebook, it's quite a nice little double header. Yeah. And this is another one of those films, and we go back to kind of Hitchcock with Vertigo. This is a film that's always up there as like one of the best films ever made. But I think this is slightly more conventional. So what's this one about? A cynical American expatriate struggles to decide whether or not he should help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape French Morocco. So mm. this is the whole play it again, Sam. Classic uh, quotes. Classic quotes in this one. So, yeah. yeah, and Hump doing his thing. No, that's good. I've looked it up and it is to rent or buy on most, most online channels. So Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Sky Store, Microsoft, etc., etc. Perfect. From 1942, so a bit of the old and a bit of the new. Good. Happy with that? Yes. Right. Well, thanks very much, Rob. Thanks Have a lot. Have a good week.
Cheers, Sarah. Cheers. See you next Bye. week. Bye. 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 Buffalo Bill. I'm what? Please <laughs> go comparing me to <laughs> Buffalo Bill, a serial killer who's, who drowns victims <laughs> and skins them and makes clothes I'm sure out of them. It, I'm sure he says bye in that way. <laughs> That's where the similarity ends. Yeah, it definitely does. Definitely does. <laughs>